I went out walking through streets paved with gold Lifted some stones, saw the skin and bones of a city without a soul I stopped outside a church house where the citizens like to sit They say they want the kingdom, but they don't want God in it Yeah, I went with nothing, nothing but the thought of you I went wandering Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah. This is Heart of the Matter, and I'm your host, Sean McCraney. Uh, if you want to have your friends watch the show on live streaming video, have them go to www.bornagainmormon.com and just click on the TV show. They'll get instructions there on how to watch anywhere in the world, Heart of the Matter live. In the house tonight, a fine-looking group. We have Maggie and Matt M. Matt Ken and Eileen, Tammy, Mike, Lou and Diana, Kim, Micah and Celeste, and Nancy and Dave. And we welcome all of you here. Shout outs to Sam F. Nice having a conversation with you, Sam. Jerry wrote to correct me on a few things, and I received your correction humbly, Jerry. Brad McElhaney, great poem, my brother. Betty and Jim. Betty, last Sunday, uh, at a uh, restaurant, sat at a table, and gave her life to the Lord with a group of us that uh, attend Lord's Word, and it was just a great uh, experience to be involved in. So, Betty, uh, our heart uh, is with you, our sister, and Jim, uh, congratulations. To Sharon, hang in, all will be well. Mark, uh, thanks for the great book on the salamander nightmare. Robert, at Richardson's Mon for Richardson's Monitor of Freemasonry. To Laura and Jamie S., Vaughn and Penny P., Gladys H., Gail C., Terry and Helen T., Marilyn S., Brian and Carol Young, it was great to meet with you, who work with the women in the prison at Point of the Mountain. I met them by chance, and it was a great meeting. So it's really great to be out there and rub shoulders with all of you and meet you. And so uh, we pray God's blessings to be upon you. Since Heart of the Matter started, uh, a lot of the kids who uh, hung out with my daughters in California have since come up to Utah to attend BYU. And in an effort to possibly protect these innocents from my influence, if they happen to turn on the television, some people in that area have started some very ugly rumors, which have in turn come around and gotten to the ears of my daughters. And uh, they've also been getting the cold shoulder from people they have known and loved since they were little girls. So I'm going to address some of those rumors tonight, and if you happen to be watching from the neighborhood, I want you to take this back to your parents and let them know that they are simply rumors. Rumor number one, I heard that your dad stood up in the state conference and screamed that the church is not true. Uh, that's a total fabrication. Nothing even resembling the charge is true. In fact, uh, I even spoke at an LDS church after I left it and uh, was complimented by many LDS people that it was very... Uh, uh, kind, 
comments. So I never have, I never will disrupt an LDS meeting uh, with any kind of outburst. Rumor number two, I heard that your dad left the church because he had a homosexual affair. Uh, I, uh, I have to tell you kids, it's not so. I'm not a homosexual, I'm not a bi or a metrosexual. Uh, I'm not a child molester either, which some people have intimated to that. I'm just a regular old male heterosexual, and I've had enough problems with that side. So um, just to let you know, it's, uh, I've never had a homosexual affair. You can charge me with a lot of things, but not that. So that's a complete lie, complete rumor. And finally, I heard that your dad goes out to general conference and shouts and screams and tells the LDS that they're going to burn in hell. And again, that is not so. I've never done that. In fact, our ministry is against doing that. Uh, we, have nothing, we have no problem with people sharing the truth in a street forum. But if it comes to going to general conference and saying things and yelling things that are uh, derogatory, um, I hate that. One kid says, well, if none of that's true, what does your dad do? And my middle daughter responded, my dad cares that people experience being born again. He does not believe Mormonism teaches this reality to its people. He also doesn't believe that Joseph Smith's doctrines represent God. But, she continued, but he loves Mormon people. He lets me choose who I hang out with and even where I want to go to church. He has even driven me to Mormon dances. If I was in love with a Mormon boy and wanted to marry him, he would give me his blessing. He just doesn't care about the organized religion. What he cares about is Mormon people really knowing Jesus, and many of them don't. I don't think I can add much more to her response. Hey, we are planning a special event in a week and a half, two weeks, October 8th, a Monday night. We are calling it Pastor in the Oven. And uh, yes, it's going to give you an opportunity to tie me up and throw me into a burning oven. Just kidding. Actually, we're going to take the pastor in the pub concept and we're going to take it to the real Mecca of Mormonism, Happy Valley, Utah, and we're going to meet at a restaurant called the Brick Oven, which is right off the campus of Brigham Young University. And we're going to go from 6 to 8.30 p.m. Monday, October 8th at the Brick Oven. All you BYU students who watch the show are welcome to come down. People from Happy Valley, north, south, east, and west, come down and join us. If uh, you're a believer, if you're LDS, we'd love to see you there. So again, Monday, October 8th, Pastor in the Oven. You can go to the website. And remember tonight, we're going to have our standard pastor in, pastor, pastored, <laughs> pastor in the pub. Uh, I can be a pastor sometimes, by the way. Uh, we're going to have our normal pastor in the pub at Denny's on 5th South, 250 West in Salt Lake City. And we had about 40 people there last week. We would love to see you there. It's a great time for all. All right, we've received some feedback from people who profess themselves to be just legal eagles and on hate speech, and um, they say that I am guilty of distributing the stuff and that I have to be stopped. Last week, I read an email from a first-year BYU uh, law student who said she was going to use every bit of her influence to galvanize the hearts of people with an earshot against me. Well... This singular voice has stirred up a little bit, and there's a few others who have sent emails both to the station and to me. And uh, these are attorney trainees from the J. Reuben Clark's uh, Law School, and they contest to know that they have some experience in these matters that we don't. 
All of their threats fall under the charge that I am using hate speech because Mormonism is a religion and as such, it is... Uh, it cannot be criticized. Religion cannot be criticized publicly or else it's deemed hate speech. When John Krakauer published the book Under the Banner of Heaven, a rather scathing indictment on the LDS church history and culture, official Mormondom here in Salt Lake City renounced him as an unreliable author because he is an atheist. Like it or not, atheism is a form of a faith. It is his own religion. Therefore, according to your definitions, the LDS Church you blindly defend is guilty of the very hate speech of which you accuse me of committing. What is it, was it hate speech when Joseph Smith told everybody that all the Christian churches are corrupt? Is that hate speech? Was Brigham Young's comments on black people and the priesthood hate speech? You attend a university that uses his name. You support him. Do you support that kind of speech? What about what I was taught in the temples uh, as a young man that popes and priests and um, Protestant preachers are all in the employ of the devil? Is that hate speech? Finally, can what I do here on the show really be defined as hate speech? Let me give you an example. Imagine for a moment that a group pops up somewhere in this world and they call themselves the Church of the Smoking Herb. And this church claims a person must smoke large amounts of ganj in order to get to God someday. You have to, but it's a church. Now, okay, I give them the right to be that church. There's a lot of churches out there in the naked city, and we don't, can't address all of them, and they're small, and they're insignificant. But let's say that the Church of the Smoking Herb gets some legs, and it starts teaching uh, not only this doctrine of ganj to God, but it also starts teaching that... Uh, well, their doctrines are Christian. Now, do I have a right to say, well, that's just not Christian? Or is the fact that they're a church prohibit me from criticizing it publicly? Is that called hate speech because I criticize them? Now, what if suddenly they say, we are the only true church on the face of the earth? Can we then collectively say, we're sorry, that is not true. In fact, this doctrine about smoking guns to get to God is just not biblical. Or can we not say anything because the Church of the Smoking Herb is, a, is, is sacrosanct and it can't be touched by any criticism whatsoever? Anytime we question anything publicly that, that has to do with religion, it's called hate speech now? Um, let's forget that we call it the Church of the Smoking Herb. Let's say we call it the Church of the Give Us Your Brain, Your Daughters, and Your Wallet Church. Could we criticize that church too? Or no, we just can't say a word. According to your logic, anything we say against anybody, no matter what the church stands for, would be hate speech. You say Jesus never would attack the church of the smoking herb. Never. Because he loves people so much and, and he doesn't care that they twist his words ad infinitum. Okay? I can't prove that there will ever be a church of the smoking herb, but I have a strong suspicion that the admissions board at the law school at Brigham Young University has been attending it. All right, last week we had a nice show. We, we had a lot of uh, people send us emails. Don't get angry with me if I don't read your emails. I'm sorry, we have a lot of them. I try to get to them. Just keep them coming. We had a lot of people call and, or email about Daniel's uh, remark from BYU that says, are you forgiven because you're obedient or are you obedient because you have been forgiven? 
This statement struck really hard to the hearts of a lot of people, LDS included. Thank you, Daniel, for sharing that with us. If you have ever, other thoughts like that, Daniel or anybody else, please call them in. Um, if you are LDS and your heart and mind tells you that you are forgiven because you have been obedient, understand that this is not in light of what being a Christian means. If you've always believed that, listen to that question that Daniel asked. Ask your question that, uh, that question to yourself again and let the Spirit work in you. All right. Finally, we're not going to do the graphic, but uh, Warren Jeffs was found guilty today for arranging that a 14-year-old girl have sex with a 19-year-old boy. He's going to face five years to life in prison. And I think not only Warren Jeffs was found guilty today, but Joseph Smith was also found guilty today because he's the originator of the practice. Um, with all that being said, let's have a word of prayer. Seems contrary or contradictory sort of, Lord, to talk to you when we're talking about all this type of thing, but you know our hearts. We want people to know you, God. We want them to, to turn their lives over to you and no one else, no other thing. We want them to be born again, to have faith in you. Lord, so we pray that your spirit will be with the viewers, the people in our audience, all the people who volunteer their time, the channel surfers, the Latter-day Saints who are watching secretly, that they will come to know you. We pray, Lord, that there are people who have not been to church in years, that they will get up on a Sunday or a Saturday and they will attend a church. They've been burned by religion. Let them find you, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A few weeks ago, we discussed the evolving doctrines of Joseph Smith uh, relative to exaltation. We spoke about several revelations that amount to what the LDS call the vision and how these detail the levels of heaven that people can experience based on the lives that they lead. We're going to talk about more, more about those next week. Directly tied to the exaltation of man and the levels of heaven was an evolving concept of temples that took hold in Joseph's imagination and morphed over time into sort of a factory whose aim was to save people who had died and to exalt man here on earth. Being a religious synthesizer that he was, Joseph borrowed heavily from other temple ideas found in other cultures and groups. The inspiration came from both the ancient uh, temples in Israel, we mentioned that three weeks ago, and from Masonic temples, which we covered two weeks ago, and where those how those influenced him in coming up with the LDS version of temples. Tonight, we're going to look at how the LDS temples got started and how they've changed. Next week, we'll finish our topic on temples, talking about exactly what people do when they go in. And when I say exactly, I'm not going to reveal the, the, the little secret things they do, which are really not going to mean anything to you, but I'm going to tell you what, how they process these people through and some of the things that go on in there that help give Latter-day Saints the mindset that they have against the rest of the Christian world. Joseph Smith always thought big. In all the biographies I read of him, he always had this, this futuristic uh, Swedenborgian type vision of the future. It was always very big and broad. And um, 
Everything was big. The golden plates weren't tin. They were golden plates. And the Lamanite nation was giant. They, they had huge wars where thousands of people were killed with these enormous steel swords. And, and the restored gospel was going to take over the world. And, and temples were no different to Joseph Smith. When he thought of temples, he thought big. All right. So back around 1832, Joseph organized a group of men to train them for ministry work. And he called this training group the School of the Prophets. I believe, in my opinion, that the School of the Prophets was a precursor to what temples ultimately became. And it was a place of instruction. It was a place for these rough men, these, these uh, pioneer type guys, to go and kind of refine themselves. And it was a place where holiness was stressed. In it, the students were challenged by Revelation 2, quote, this is a revelation that G uh, Joseph received for them, sanctify yourselves, yea, purify your hearts, and cleanse your hands and your feet before me, that I, make you, that I may make you clean, end quote. They were warned, like members of the church today are warned in the temple, to mind their, quote, carnal thoughts, their light-mindedness and their lustful desires to speak quietly and to avoid jesting too much. Like temples today, the perfecting of man, the exaltation of man was the focus in the school of the prophets. In fact, in the school of the prophets, each day the president of the school would go before the classroom as they came in. He'd greet the, pup pup pupils. the pupils with his hands above his head and he would say these words. He'd say, Art thou a brother or brethren? I salute you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in token or remembrance of the everlasting covenant in which covenant I receive you to fellowship and determination that is fixed, immovable and unchangeable to be your friend and brother through the grace of God in the bonds of love, end quote. He'd say all that and they would come in and they'd either repeat that back to him or they would say amen and sit down and class would begin. Here we find more fodder for the thing Joseph would eventually present as the endowment ceremony in Nauvoo about eight years later, eight or nine years later. Where God revealed to the children of Israel what they needed to do in the temple in Leviticus, and he never changed that, Joseph's temple rituals, even today, 1991, 1987, going back even further, those things continue to change and evolve within the temple. They start with this, they add that, they change this, they modify that. Now understand, most Latter-day Saints believe when you step into a temple and you learn these things, these processional things, that those are what get you into heaven. So you could go one day and learn a certain segment of things you have to do in order to get into heaven, and then you die that night, and that, that afternoon they change the ceremony, and you're not doing the same thing that, that, you were, that they were teaching later. So, I mean, I literally thought of that when I was attending the temple. I was LDS, and they made a drastic change on some things. And I thought, what if I had learned this whole system, and I died in between the time they changed, and I didn't know, and I go up, and I'm trying to use the old system, and they've got this new one going. I mean, am I left in a limbo or what? So we have this idea of change. Now, God doesn't do that. He has a specific reason in his temple in Israel, and we know what it was for. We've talked about that at length. So in a revelation given in the school of the prophets, Joseph mentions establishing a house of God. This is like the igniter of getting this house of God thing going. And right here, every Christian who had become a Mormon back there in 1833 
should have opened the Bible and seen that God does not dwell in temples made with hands since the ascension of Jesus Christ. God dwells in the heart, in the spirit of believers. Okay? But they didn't do that. Men's ideas overshadowed God's simple word and they pro progressed forward. Also, the LDS used Malachi 3.1 as a reason to justify building temples now, and it is such a twisted application. This is what Malachi 3.1 says, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. This is merely talking about John the Baptist being, a, being the messenger that comes before, and the Lord will come to his temple. It's all pointing, as all of the Old Testament does, to the coming of the Messiah. The LDS says that if it says, suddenly come to his temple, that he has to have a temple to come to. So they have to build temples for his millennial return. And that's how they use that scripture to justify, that's how they used it back then to justify the building of temples. Forgetting that this verse is referring to John the Baptist. Anyway, Masons met in what they called temples. The Mason, Masonic organization have temples and had them well prior to Joseph Smith constructing his. And Joseph visited New York City prior to establishing a temple. And we don't know this, but I believe that he was able to witness firsthand the Masonic temple that was built in New York City. New York City. Wow. And that it inspired him, maybe not so much as to the architecture, but to the concept temples. Okay, I've been looking for this centerpiece to get these people going. Temples, oh, and I think there could have been something to it, my opinion. Other than making temples the center of the Mormon life in the community, Joseph didn't have any idea what was going to go on in those things uh, compared to what they do now or what they did in Nauvoo. We have Kirtland. 1833, we have Nauvoo, 1838, 1839, and then we have temples on from there. Between Kirtland and, and Nauvoo, these temples, they served, as all, they served all kinds of purposes. They were a multi-purpose room. They did not have anything to do with what they do in temples now. I don't think it was a build it and they will come kind of thing. Uh, I think it was a build it and let's see what we can do to make the thing work. And, because that just is how it seems to read. In Joseph's vision of Mormon cities, the temple was always the center, all right? And uh, LDS author Bushman, he says, quote, City planning was common for utopian and religious visionaries. In many respects, he continues, the Zion format with its square blocks and central squares resembled plans devised by other town founders in these years. So having the temple and then having Right angle, squares, streets, northeast, south, and west, lined up off the temple. These were utopian ideas for cities that religious leaders and other uh, founders and, and masons, they applied well before Joseph ever did it. If you recall, we stated last week that a number of early American towns were laid out by the masons uh, and who had temples on the brain. And so they laid their towns out the very way Salt Lake City's laid out. Now, when I was a kid, I distinctly remember being taught that the way Salt Lake has been laid out with its north, south, east, and west, with the temple at the center and everything radiating off it, was, it was a perfect illustration of God working through Brigham Young and inspiring him to do something that was just unheard of in the rest of America. And I bought it. That's just absolutely not true. It's not true at all. This is all it is, is that they may be stuck to the plan. 
and maybe they this was a new frontier and it was laid this way and so we have it. It was a very fresh area and they did it this way, but Brigham borrowed it from, from Joseph and the way they did it at Nauvoo and the way they did it at all the other cities and the way that was done before they even tried to settle a city. So another disappointment. Uh, so remember the saints were first in Kirtland and at the same time there was a group of them and they were going to build another temple in Missouri. So um, the church was in Kirtland and then we have Jackson County, Missouri. And in a revelation, Joseph said, Jackson County, Missouri is going to be Zion. It's going to be the place where all the saints will gather. The millennium will come. They're going to gather in preparation for Jesus' return. It was millennialist to the core, and that was going to be Zion, all right? So they had these temples as a centerpiece. Well, conflicts led to the Mormons being kicked out of Zion. So that prophecy did not fulfill. It has never fulfilled. It was a false prophecy. Jackson County, Missouri never was and never will be Zion, all right? Um, and so, uh, but the Kirtland temple that they built moved ahead full steam and it was built at a great expense. And the first ritual was a washing and an anointing. And it occurred in 1836, the washing and anointing that they did in that temple was nothing like what they do today in the temples here. Um, it was a total bath. It was cleaning the people up. Literally, they stood stark naked, completely undressed. And they'd pour water over them, and they'd clean them up, and then they'd pour oil on them. And that's what they did in a tub, okay? Those of you who attend the temple now, if you're LDS, know that's nothing like what they do today. These washing and anointing tubs grew to the point where three men would fit in one, all totally naked and washed there and then anointed, and three women would fit in one. They were in separate rooms, and this was the washing and anointing process, and that was the big thing in the Kirtland Temple, all right? There's a book called Power on High from Gregory Prince Signature Books, and it quotes William Harris in 1841 talking about going through the Kirtland Temple. It's a quote from his diary. I don't have it with me. I left it in my office. But it talks about how they would take a sacrament of bread and wine, and, and they would drink as much wine as they could consume without getting totally drunk. And the reason they could do that is because uh, Joseph told them that the wine, because it was sanctified, wouldn't make them drunk. And so they would get this, this real spirit going on, and then they would have these spiritual experiences within. And that's from someone's diary who attended this first temple, the Kirtland Temple. By the way, many of you know that the Latter-day Saints... Uh, don't use wine in their communion or what they call the sacrament. They use water. And that changed. They used to use real wine, and that changed over time. And in eight, 1916, Apostle Orson F. Whitney addressed the sacrament change by saying this, quote, If we use water instead of wine in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, it is because Christ has so commanded. Divine revelation adapts itself to the circumstances and conditions of men and change upon change ensues as God's progressive work goes on to its destiny. That was in a conference report of 1916. So that shows the model that they will change whatever is necessary as the circumstances and conditions of men change. And they say God works that way. So where wine was once a thing, no more. We're going to use water now. Um, the temple things uh, followed suit. The Kirtland Temple still stands today. It was unique as it related architecturally to levels of priesthood. 
And uh, then the city of Kirtland fell, to, fell apart because of a banking issue that the LDS church uh, was involved in, and the banks essentially went bust. So the presidency had to bail out of the city. The Kirtland Temple was left, and they moved on to another place called Far West, uh, Missouri. In Far West, they had plans for a temple, and they ultimately moved from there because of persecution to Nauvoo. And in Nauvoo, they established this temple that was going to... Uh, uh, start to become the ritual temple that we know them to be today. Uh, because I'm going to take one more minute and explain something. In Nauvoo, by this time in 1838, six years later, Joseph had been practicing polygamy secretly. He had taken on wives secretly. And he had also learned about masonry, as we mentioned last week. He had experienced a number of different things. And man, Joseph, he could take that Denny's cup and he could turn it into something good religiously. And so he took all this stuff, and he had a store in Nauvoo before the temple was built. And upstairs on that store, the upstairs floor, they put curtains in and carpet, and they painted murals on the walls, and they made it a little temple. And in there, they anointed each other as uh, these elect people, and they, and they did their first ceilings, plural marriages up there. And I believe it was kind of the workshop for what they would do in the temple. And I think this is where Joseph honed the endowment ceremony down these levels and borrowed and mixed and matched. And in, the whole time, the Nauvoo Temple is being built. And finally, the Nauvoo Temple comes into play, and it's uh, built and uh, uh, finished, but Joseph Smith had been assassinated about four years prior to that even happening. They used the Nauvoo Temple for about a year, maybe a little less if memory serves. It was then destroyed because they were driven out of Illinois. They came out here to the west. Brigham Young then said in the state of Utah, we're going to put four temples in. We're going to put one in Logan. We're going to put one in Salt Lake. We're going to put one in Manti, and we're going to put one in St. George. And in St. George, uh, that was the first one that was completed. The city plots were all based around these temples, and, and uh, on you go. Remember that amidst all this stuff, Joseph was gaining power like he had never experienced before. He ran for president during these Nauvoo years. He was the mayor of Nauvoo. He was elected king of the world in Nauvoo. He uh, had a, a, a system, a council of 50 specially anointed men uh, in Nauvoo. And this power base became the foundation for temple use to this day forward. So next week, we will continue on with more and finish up LDS temples. Let's go to the phones at 801-973-TV20, 801-973-8820. Please make sure that you turn your television sets down uh, when you come on because uh, it really, really takes up a lot of time to get you to do that. While the operators are answering calls, I want to read a couple quick emails, amazing emails. This one is from M, who says, Sunday has always been a day of dread for me. I have spent my whole life trying to fill up this emptiness inside me. I have been down many roads, some of them good, some of them not. Nothing has filled me, not church, not drugs, not a number of super great kids, not one granddaughter who came straight from heaven, not my job as a blank, not my friends, not my family, not even the incredibly blessed life I have, nothing. So now I'm going down another road, trying to understand and believe in something beyond this world, trying to figure out what is real and what is not. I suppose that kind of journey takes a lifetime. It also takes a first step. I have taken that step. Thank you for your passionate caring for those of us who 
stumble. Karen writes us and says those who have uh, made oaths in the LDS temples need to specifically in prayer renounce those specific oaths so that they are released spiritually from them. She has a number of um, insight in relationship to this kind of thing and has found that many of her LDS friends who have come to find the uh, Lord find themselves bound by some of the oaths they've taken uh, spiritually and emotionally and that you must go and you must personally renounce each oath in the name of Jesus in order to be freed from the bondage of that um, institution. I got an email from a man I'm going to call G, and G is a homosexual, and he was disappointed in me equating homosexuality with sin uh, last week. I emailed him back, and I, I said... Um, this is might disturb some of you. I said, Greg, let me restate something. <laughs> Being gay is not what keeps a person out of heaven. Not embracing Jesus and Lord and Savior does this. Uh, being perhaps more of a sinner than you will ever dream of being, I do not condemn you, nor would I be so arrogant to state that you are going to hell. But I have a guide that I trust, the Word of God, and it lists homosexuality as being on the list of sin. You need to deal with it. And maybe it will be only by the grace of God that you can, but you certainly can't expect me as a Bible-believing person to say homosexuality is not a sin when the Bible says it is. I mean, even if the most natural thing in the world to you, which he says it is, that you can't resist acting on it, it doesn't mean it's not a sin. And I went on to explain that it could be a condition of the fall. Whatever it is, we all have sin. I wasn't picking specifically on homosexuality. It's another sin. You, might, you have it. I have sins of my own. It's Jesus who helps us deal and cope and understand life relative to these uh, complex issues in our life. So um, I he says that he has had a wonderful uh, experience with the Lord recently, and he's looking for a, a place to come to church. I'm sure any Christian church in this valley would accept you. And he says, and his... Uh, lover to come to church to seek Jesus. And I want you to know if they don't, you're always welcome at Lord's Word to come and sit and learn about what the Word of God says relative to your life. We have uh, one more. Your show has helped my husband clear up any confusion he has had about the LDS religion uh, and having a relationship with our Lord two months ago. He and my 12-year-old son were baptized. Boy, did it create havoc in his family. But with a lot of reading, the Bible, discussion, prayer, Tuesday nights at 8 p.m., he has learned a lot, and so have I. Um, despite the obvious attack and tribulation that has developed, our faith in Christ has grown considerably. It is amazing how God has changed us. His work is in us, apparent and beautiful. Praise God. And that is from Brittany. All right, we're going to Jason from North Salt Lake. Jason, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, I got a question. Yes. Hey, um, I've been pondering and pondering on this, and I should pray about it, but I haven't. Okay, I was born, okay, bleh, I was baptized in the LDS church, right? Yeah. And as a kid at the, the age, I don't feel like, um, you know, the church is true and everything like that. Now I was only baptized to make everybody around me happy or whatever. Right. So would that really, and if, you know, the doctrine's not true, would that person that baptized me, would that be a true baptism? No. Or would it? No, it's well, just, I should get rebaptized again in a, because you know I don't feel I never have, you know, spiritually like it was true or anything like that. I only did it not yeah. myself. And another question, really quick here, 
is this is what pushes up Mormon's buttons. This is funny. This is a good one. Is they always say, oh, I want to go back in time and live. I'd rather live back in time in, in that, you know, in the 1800s. And you've heard that before from a lot of people. And then I ask them, if you did that, um, if you had daughters, would you give them to a 40, 50-year-old man if, if they were only 12 and they wanted them back in the day of the, you know, with the disciples of the 1800s wanted them? Would How they like that? Yeah, and I'm like, and they're like all quiet, like yeah, the child molesters, man. You give them, you'd give your own daughter away to them if you, if you were told. Hey, Jason, uh, on the baptism, baptism is a, a way for an outward expression for you to show your inward commitment and dedication, life to God, to Jesus. So you want to do that when you want to show the world, hey, I'm being baptized because of my faith in Him. It's an outward expression. It's a, a, a command for us. It's a great thing. I love baptism, and so you should do it now that you're ready. Uh, if you're ready and you've been born again, you know the Lord, you trust Him, you have faith in Him, go to your preacher or pastor and say, I want to be baptized. See, that's what I was saying. I want to do it for myself, not because I was brainwashed. You Amen. Know, I no, you know, I was innocent. I had no clue what was going on. Exactly. All right, thanks for the call, man. All right, thanks. Thank you. Bye-bye. We're going to Carolyn, first-time caller from Layton. Carolyn, you're on Heart of the Matter. Carolyn? Uh, hi. Hi. I've always been Mormon my whole life, but I've been really, really struggling with it for the last few years. And one of the things that I have taken to, um, like my bishop and two different bishops, and I specifically asked them, the thing that I'm really having a problem with is it feels like the Mormon church um, worships Joseph Smith as opposed to Jesus Christ. Uh -huh. It seems like all of their teachings and everything is they put Joseph Smith on a pedestal and not so much Jesus Christ. And I've always been told, obviously, that we were Christian, Christian, Christian. Right. That's my first question. And then what do you think about that? And then number two, my other question is, you know, about the first vision and Joseph Smith saw, you know, you know what he saw. And then he goes ahead. He knows he's going to be killed. He knows he's going to be assassinated within the, you know, the jail. Uh -huh. Why would a kid or a man go ahead and be killed? And, I mean, it feels like he died for his faith. Uh -huh. But then in the same sense, I have a real problem believing in Joseph Smith. Yeah. So tell me what you think. Well, uh, on the first uh, question, I think that your uh, inclinations that they talk, they teach, they preach, they sing about Joseph Smith more than Jesus is, is correct. And they're going to be LDS. There are certain wards and stakes in this world that, that are focusing more on Jesus. And so the people in those wards and stakes are going to say, that's not true, that's not true. But, but in, I'm, I'm saying it's the church as a whole, though. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. You'll find the lesson plans is always around the prophets, around Joseph, around his teachings, and it just supersedes. They will always say Jesus Christ. Everything is an appendage from Jesus. But bottom line, where the rubber meets the road, they talk and teach and preach about Joseph and his life more than anything else. You're absolutely right. So your inclinations are correct, and they're leading you somewhere. The second question was just a key word. What? Um, Joseph Smith dying. Oh, <clears throat> you know, a couple things, couple thoughts on it. From what I've read, he he escaped from things ever since he was a kid. I mean, he always escaped from things. And so one, I think he thought he might escape from this too. 
Yes, he said, I'm going like a lamb to the slaughter, but he made those dire statements other times when he was headed to, towards some trouble. He'd been in and out of courts. He'd been put in jails. He'd been in and he escaped from different places because people let him. All kinds of, of, of high adventure. So it's quite possible that he thought, well, this is just another one and maybe I'll escape. Secondly, he took a gun with him to this one. So he, he took a gun to a martyrdom, which is really funny. And uh, he shot back. So, and so did other people in the room. So they thought they might be able to possibly win the war. I don't know. He also, instead of staying there in the room and fighting it out, he tried to climb out the window. So I think he, he just kind of played it out and tried to see if this was going to be the last one where he could escape again, and it just didn't work. Huh. Interesting. So there, there's my views on as possibly the reason why. And then finally, there's always the idea that maybe he wanted to martyr it out because, uh, wow, that would really seal the whole thing. It takes a death sometimes to get movements really going. And maybe he thought, well, I'll go for it. I, I have no idea. That's an extreme view, but possible. Yeah. Yeah. It just, I don't know, Sean, it just, it seems like, you know, look at this church. It's grown and grown and grown and grown. Yeah. I mean, bigger and I, it's it's hard for me to fathom that all these people do you think they're just spinning around on untruths over and over and over again that are expounded upon through the years or well let me give you a comparison to help you think look at islam okay islam dwarfs mormonism 100 times over possibly islam is growing like no other uh, what do you think about the quran and their and their and their tenets uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, they say, are growing just as quickly as, as Latter-day Saints. So I don't think growth is ne necessarily indicative of truth. Yeah. Je remember Jesus said, he said, straight is the gate, narrows the way, and few be there that find it. So this, this mass worldwide appeal of this great marketing system, to me, doesn't say anything but world. Uh, and that's how I view it. Does that help? Or not. Well, they're not excommunicating people for the, the reasons they, that they used, they used to. to, and I've always thought they don't want to, <laughs> they don't want to um, uh, limit their, uh, you know, the people that are in the church. Yeah. And that's always kind of bothered me. Keep searching, Carolyn. Go to a, a Christian church. Just test one out through all your searches. It may disturb you for a while because it's culturally very different, but talk to the Lord. Give him your heart. Say, please just give me truth. Direct me to the truth, and he will do it. All right. Thank you so much, Sean. All right. I appreciate what you're doing. Okay. God bless you. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Right, bye-bye. We're going to Jim and Tooele. Jim, first-time caller on Heart of the Matter. Jim, you got to yeah. yeah. turn your TV off, brother. Jim? Yes, here. Yeah, you have to turn your TV down. It's off. Okay. Fire away. All right, uh, this is Jim from uh, Twill. I've got an interesting question for you. Um, I've been watching, you know, the first segment of, of the show. You talked about Joseph Smith, the founder of the church. Uh, all of these um, progressions and how the church adapts to current situations. Yeah. It's, it's puzzling to me, and, and I'm Episcopalian. Uh, why is there a Brigham Young University and not a Joseph Smith? Smith universities, does that show that there has been a transition of power, or you know, how does that play into this whole picture uh, on the evolution of the church? Wow. That's a, that's a really good question. I haven't get much thought to it. I think the church probably rewards the people who do the work, 
Brigham did lead him out here, and he did settle it, and he, he established the school. He got the schools going, and so I don't think they just continue to attribute it all the way back. They keep giving men rewards, and maybe as men see, hey, maybe I can get a building named after me or a school, they work harder and harder in order to, to have their name last once they die. The, the church is just remarkable in how they keep the system going. And maybe that's one tactic, is that they continue to reward the people who uh, have contributed greatly. For instance, the Gordon B. Hinckley building was just put up in Orem or Provo, Utah. And there's a grand edifice in the name of another prophet. And so maybe uh, it has something to do with that. I have never really thought about it. It's a great question. Well, it just seems like that kind of shakes the foundation of the church, because Joseph Smith was the leader, and it seems like you would pay... Uh, tributes to Joseph Smith rather than his followers. Well, I'll tell you this, when it comes to the teachings and the doctrine, Joseph Smith's the man. I mean, Brigham Young gets some talk, but he said so many crazy things, they really try to, to, to uh, edit him. But Joseph Smith, that's where most of the doctrine comes from, the teaching, and their beliefs still go all the way back to him, and he gets the credit for that. And he is called the prophet, and they do have songs about him. There's not a song in the hymn book about Brigham Young. Okay. Yeah, hey. so it's kind of a dual thing, I think. All right, thanks. This is a, a learning process for me, and I, I really appreciate it. All right, thanks for the call. You betcha. All right, bye-bye. We're going to Heather, first-time caller from Salt Lake City. Heather, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi, how are you? Good, how are you? I'm doing well. You, uh, you have to turn your TV down, Heather. It's, uh, it's down. Okay, uh, what's your question? My question is, is, Hi, how are you tonight? Well, I'm doing fine. How are you, Heather? I'm doing great. My question is, is you were talking, you mentioned earlier about Joseph Smith. Yes. And also, didn't Brigham Young also do the polygamy thing? And how do you feel about chastity? How do I feel about chastity? Huh? How do I feel about chastity? Huh? Oh, okay. Uh, Brigham Young did do the polygamy thing. He did it bigger and better than Joseph did, if I can use that term. Uh, he had, I think, 56 wives. Joseph, they tally it out about 33 that they can really prove. And uh, they really made polygamy a pragmatic operation here in Utah. Right. Joseph was pretty secretive about his because Emma was going to kill him half the time for, for messing around. But... Brigham's wives bought into the whole thing, and so it, it became standard for the leaders, essentially. Right. I, I think chastity is a, a, the most beautiful thing that men and women can offer to God. I think that he gave us bodies, and you're going to choose to do what you want with them, or you can choose to do what God wants you to do with them. Now, I, I, I'm not a prude, and I, there's nothing wrong with, uh, with sex at all. God gave us the parts. But time, timing is important to God. And so he wants us to use uh, all the parts he gave us within the proper order. And if you've kind of followed that along through the Bible, you'll find that, that uh, chastity is a wonderful, wonderful thing for people to uh, maintain. Right, I agree with that totally. Um, the reason why I asked how you felt about chastity was because um, I was actually assaulted and it went to church about nine months ago and had you know, been, you know, blamed for being raped and sexually assaulted before I was married. And that's why I was wondering how you felt about it. And they, you know, totally 
disagreed on that kind of a situation. They, they, they blamed you and castigated you for being raped and assaulted prior in, in your life? Exactly, because I so-called had sex before I was married, even though it wasn't my fault. Yeah, you know what? That you're talking to an insane person uh, uh, at that church. Whoever told you that is is a few bricks short of a load. Let me tell you something. Uh, if you go to a gynecologist and you have an examination before you're married, does that make you unchaste? Chastity is of the heart. It's not the physical thing. Yes, the physical thing plays a role in in what we do, but it's where your heart is. Because you were physically assaulted by some idiot has nothing to do with your heart before God. So take that and whoever told that to you and throw it out the window because it is an absolute lie. I'm sorry to hear that you ever heard someone ever said that to you. And yeah, I'm glad something that you agree with me on that because, you know, it's like, you know, I've had friends that have gotten pregnant by that kind of a situation and, you know, they they go on with the abortion. Oh, well, if it's you know, this situation or that situation, then we can understand killing this unborn baby. But I asked him, I said, well, how would you feel if that was part of God's plan, is to have that baby be born? Yeah, it was an uncruel, it was a cruel situation, but maybe that was God's plan. Do you, do you agree or disagree on that? I don't know. It's, it's, a, it's a kind of a difficult uh, thing as far as agreeing or disagreeing. I don't think abortion's good or I don't like it. I'm not for it. And I think God uh, can step in and make all horrible things good. So uh, that's kind of the way I would respond to that. I really appreciate your call, Heather. I agree with the abortion thing, too. And, you know, I don't agree with abortion. I think it's wrong and murder. And yeah. I'm just sit there and say that, that, you know. So thank you very much. I'm glad that you agree. Okay, Heather. You take care. You too. Okay, God bless. Bye-bye. By the way, when I went to Brigham Young University, uh, Spencer W. Kimball was the prophet of the LDS Church, and he was really big on throwing down on people. He had this book called uh, Miracle of Forgiveness, and he actually said, I remember when I was a freshman at BYU, if a girl is abducted and she's going to be raped and can choose to either endure the rape or be tossed out onto the freeway and killed, she should be tossed out on the freeway and killed so she doesn't lose her virtue. You know, I heard that. That was another little brick in the wall. Sorry to point to Pink Floyd, but I mean, that was just another brick in this wall that crumbled down on my head one day. You know, come on. Where is the heart and love and understanding for this kind of thing? I shouldn't even got on this subject. Okay, let's go to uh, Kim, first-time caller in Idaho. Kim, you're on Heart of the Matter. Yes. Hi, Kim. Hi. Um, I am. I am actually a member of the LDS Church. Uh huh. And um, I was calling because I've, I've watched your show numerous times here in Idaho, and I was wondering um, why you gen. I have never in the past seen LDS callers that it tends to be people that are completely against the church yeah. and that I don't feel a vo- the LDS voices have been heard on your show. Yeah, you're right about that. And uh, there's a few reasons. One is in your area, you don't get it live. So people don't think to, to call. And when they do, they're not going to get me. Exactly. And, and here in Utah, we know of two stake presidents, and that's a large geographical area that have sent letters out saying, uh, do not watch this show. So, and we know that Latter-day Saints aren't, uh, they try. We'll get them to call when I get them angry enough, they'll call. Mm-hmm. Usually a Sarah or a Emma. But uh, they will call, and I think I'm pretty argumentative if they try to throw down stuff and get away with stuff. 
And because I confront them and I hit them with the stuff that I know, having been LDS 40 years, I think they're resistant to call, so they sit there and they listen. And, uh, and that's the best I can, I can give you as to reasons why we don't get as many calls from the LDS. Okay. I mean, I've just recently been watching your show. I, there's a lot I have my own views, of course, on. Sure. But, um, you know, I'm, I, I, I'm open to listening to lots of things. I have my own testimony, of course, of what I believe. Right. Kim, can I ask you one question? Yes, sir. Have you been born again? Yes, I feel I have. You feel you have? What, how does that translate to you into what that means? Um, born again to me means that I have accepted Christ as my Savior and that, um, that what he did for me was enough to make up for any sin that I would commit here on earth for me to return to my Heavenly Father. Regardless of, of uh, your contributions to his efforts? Um, I feel that I need to be the best person I can, but um, I believe that it doesn't matter how good of a person I am. Without Christ's sacrifice, I would not return to my Heavenly Father because I am an imperfect first person. Okay, that's the, that's the way the LDS typically put that, is that regardless of how good they are, without His sacrifice, they couldn't make it back. The, the, the question is, though... Can you add anything to his sacrifice for sin? I'm, maybe I'm not understanding you. you, you do you way. need to do anything else to ensure that you, as you would put it, return to live with God again? Are you speaking... Um, anything. Like being baptized or... Anything. Bapti whatever it is, give me the list. Um, I feel I need to be baptized by the proper authority. Okay. There's Christians who believe that too. Keep going. Um, I believe that uh, I need to live a Christ-like life. Okay, so it is, um, it's dependent on you, okay, so keep going. Any others? Um, Do you have to go to the temple? It's very simple. You know, I, I, yes, I am a, a card-carrying so <laughs> recommend-holding member, and so, yes, I feel that I needed to make covenants with my Heavenly Father to, to okay. be the best person I could. Do you need to be married, sealed for time and all eternity to somebody to reach the highest kingdom where God will dwell? Um, that's not completely true. In your mind? Because it's completely true in doctrine. But in your mind, it, that's not the case? Well, I am married and I am sealed to um, my husband. Okay. But I also know that a, some, a really great woman, and I don't feel that the Lord would not give her an opportunity to return to him without, with, because it has not been provided here for her to be able to have a mate. But she'll get a mate sometime and have that work done vicariously for her in a temple so she can ultimately get to the highest place. Agreed. Agreed? Yeah, that's, okay. that's my view, correct. Okay. I just, wanted, I just wanted to do that and so that everybody in our audience can hear. That is the LDS version of being born again and how you... Go to God after this life, all right? And if you're Christian or if you're wondering, you know the differences between how Christians stand on it and how the LDS do. I really appreciate your call, Kim. I kind of, can I say something? I feel like you kind of twisted everything there. I didn't twist anything. I just let you speak and I just summarized. You tell me what I twisted. I feel that um, 
I, I really feel that you like to took a look at the Native Party. I think there's many people that are not baptized members of this church, of my church, that will have celestial glory. Well, they, they have to be baptized by your church vicariously in a temple in order to have that. And you have to admit that because if you say no, then either you're ignorant of it or you're, you're lying because that is the doctrine. That's why you said you had to be baptized. Mm -hmm. so, so what you're saying is you believe that there's all kinds of people who haven't been baptized in your church who will go get celestial glory, but what you're not including is the full picture. And that is that they will have to accept the LDS baptism at some point in their journey before they get back to God. Is that true? I guess, yes, I, I guess I agree with that. Okay, I, yeah. I can't argue with you on that. Yeah. Um, I definitely, definitely is something I would like to talk to my Heavenly Father about because <laughs> I have a lot of great great friends. I really feel like I'm an unjudgmental person. I, I'm not talking about your judgment, Kim, at all. Listen, do me one favor. If you just do me one favor, go and read John 1, 1 through 14. Okay. And call me back next week and tell me what that means. Okay, thank you. All right, thank you. Bye-bye. We're going to Aaron, first-time caller in Salt Lake City on the... Heavenly line four. Aaron, you're in heart of the matter, and I'm sorry, but you got to be quick. Grace, Lord Jesus Christ, I wish you started to have a couple of questions, maybe not necessarily an answer, but want just some covers to talk about it. Okay. Uh, the Book of Mormon, brass plates, 600 B.C., if it predates the Septuagint, and if it's predating way before the Masoretic text, how come it quotes the Book of Mormon so frequently? And if it quotes the Book of, and if the Book of Mormon quotes the King James Bible, uh, how come the doctrines don't carry over? Like the references to hell uh, in the Book of Mormon, there's like 34 references. But when you talk to a Mormon, the references of hell don't carry over doctrinally. So there's a problem with chronology. I think it'd be a great discussion to, uh, to talk about. Is that, Aaron, is that fast? Aaron, before you go, wow, we just amplified. Before you go, uh, we have covered those, uh, those anachronistic difficulties in the Book of Mormon uh, regarding the borrowing from the, uh, the Bible and how it's uh, chronologically off. That's in our show from 2006, but good stuff, and we'll bring it back up again. Uh, thanks, sir. I'm, I'm, actually, this is my first time calling. We moved out here from Washington, but uh, I, I'll, I'll look it up on your website then. Thank All you. right. All right. Thanks, Aaron. God bless. Bye-bye. Listen, i got to make this announcement. We are taking all of 2006, all the shows, off in a week, and we're going to uh, put them in a place where we can archive them. We're running out of room, so if you want those shows, if you want to download them, copy them, make sure you do it because... After we take them off the site, they're not going to be available unless you order them. It's not a money maker. We don't make, we're not going to make money on it like uh, hand over fist, but we can't fit them on the site anymore. We're running out of space, and so we're going to take them off. So you can download them for free all you want for this next week. You've had since last year this whole time to get them. Watch them, download them, but they're not going to be there uh, after next week. Lord's Word uh, Sundays, 9-15, 10-15, Gateway. Uh, theaters here in Salt Lake City, LDS who are not going to church show up. Uh, pastor in the pub at Denny's tonight here in downtown, and pastor in the oven at Brick Oven in Provo Monday, October 8th, from eight uh, from 6 p.m. until 8:30. I want you to know that I love the LDS people. I love people in in general, and that I come across really strong here. I'm having a good time. Because I know Jesus gave me joy. I want you to have that joy and get out from the bondage that religion can put you in. Until we see you next week here on Heart of the Matter, God bless you all.